So, in this practice of awareness and recognizing awareness, uh, rather than focusing on objects of awareness, uh, the question that I have found most helpful in practicing, whether it's intensively in retreat, and the question or the the uh, result that seems to be most useful uh, leaving the retreat is the question, what is my attitude of mind? And I, I learned that, you know, in retreat, just like you are here, and I just got to asking it a lot and really planted that question as a seed in my mind. What's the attitude of mind? What's my attitude of mind? What's my attitude? No matter what I was doing, and I found, welcomingly, that when I left retreat and went about, you know, normal life activities, that question would still arise. And every time it arose, it only takes a split second to check your attitude of mind and readjust. It's not like, I mean, it's not like you say, what's the attitude of mind? You've got to spend five minutes calming down in order to find out what your attitude of mind is. It's like, it's, it's pretty obvious, pretty quick. And I found that really helpful because as soon as I, rec- soon as I recognize my attitude of mind, whether it's just kind of, you know, tilted too far into the future or resistant or <coughs> skeptical or reluctant or resentful or whatever it is, it's just like, well, that's not necessary, or that's not helpful, or that's not useful, and it would be gone. It's not like it was a struggle to let go of it. It's just becoming aware of it. That was enough. So that adds that question of what's the attitude of mind, and then in in quieter times, just is the mind aware? You know, is the mind aware in any activity really, whether it's reading or driving or you know just doing the normal things of life? Is the mind aware? Is the mind aware? And those two questions really accomplished more of bringing this practice into life outside of retreat than any other technique that I could think to offer. And it's not about a technique. It's about planting this seed of checking the mind, checking your attitude of mind, checking whether the mind's aware. And because it's not a technique and it's not an object-oriented technique, you don't have to be in a particular posture, you don't have to be in a particular place, you don't, it doesn't have to be quiet, nobody has to know that you're practicing. You know, it's like you're not sitting with your eyes closed at the desk and people are saying, what the hell are they doing? You know, or at the, rest, at the restaurant, you know, you're sitting at the table and go, oh, so excuse me, I've got to check in with myself. It's not that. It's just like, as you're reaching for the... You're reaching for the f- a spoonful of food. Is the mind aware? What's my attitude of mind? <laughs> it's really, it's, it is so portable, or so transportable, I have found. Much more so than most, I have to say, most object-oriented techniques and practices, even though it's no more, really, no more difficult. Pay attention to the movement of the body, pay attention to what's in your mind. But somehow... This question, these two questions have been really helpful for me. Um, that being said, uh, I think the other thing that I got from practicing in this way is that practice really isn't about sitting on a cushion with your eyes closed. 
It's really not. While that is beneficial and it's nice to have that kind of space of mind and that space of time to be able to sit quietly alone with your eyes closed and just kind of settle in, most of us, our lives are much busier than that. And it's really hard to find that time or to make that time or to allocate that time. And so if you can, great. By all means, do it. Or when you can, do it. But let's not have this mistaken belief that real practice is sitting in the cushion in a quiet room with your eyes closed, folded legs, hand mudra. You know, it's, that's not it. It really is check your mind, check your mind, check your mind. And... And then you can pick any number of everyday activities to emphasize as awareness practices. Whether it's waiting in lines, if you happen to be wait, if you happen to wait in lines a lot, whether it's grocery store, bank, you know, cafe, whatever it is, just make waiting a, a place where you just go oh, rather than fretting and stewing and who's in the law, who's in the quick line, and am I in the short line or am I in the long line or. You know, how many more people before I get my cafe coffee and croissant and whatever, just like, chunk. just be present with your mind at that, doing that. So, picking uh, daily activities, waiting in lines, brushing your teeth, whatever it is that you're going to do every day and maybe many times, many days, that will really help um, establish more of a continuity. The other thing is remember, continuity is the key. Whatever you can do to be more continuous, uh, remembering to recognize the present moment, uh, that's going to, to be beneficial. The other thing, um, the Bodhisattva, who became the Buddha, spent lifetimes developing the ten paramis. And that's what qualified him to become a Buddha. What qualifies us to gain liberating insight is the same, development of the paramis. And so really, the ten paramis are householders' practices that you can do every day. We forget. Can anybody name the ten paramis? I rarely can. You know, and, I, and I teach them. And I can rarely remember all ten. But... That's just it. We forget that, oh, patience is an option here. Generosity is an option here. Non-reactivity is an option in this situation. Truthfulness is an option in this situation. We forget that these very simple, nothing particularly Buddhist, nothing particularly spiritual, nothing particularly meditative about it. It's just remember, these are the qualities that most support liberating insight. So to the extent that we develop them in our everyday life is going to support the deepening of our insight practice and liberation from it when we go on retreat and have a period of intensive insight practice. So get the ten paramis engraved in your mind and remember them. Remember Remember? Remember the function of mindfulness is to remember? Remember the ten paramis, our options, as an alternative way of responding to 
the conditions in life rather than reacting out of deeply conditioned <coughs> unskillful habits. That's it. That's what I would say is, you know, then there's there's all the usual. Try to sit every day, sit with a group, make a commitment to sit with a group. Um, if you aspire to do more retreats, make sure you schedule them early. They tend to fill up and you get stuck on a wait list. Um, if you have any thought ever that, oh, I'd like to do a longer retreat, and longer for you might be a two-week retreat, it might be a month-long retreat, it might be a three-month retreat, it might be a six-week, whatever it is, if you have a an inkling that that might be interesting to do at some point in the future, nourish that aspiration. Don't fret and stew about it if it's not possible at this point, but just nourish it, nurture it, know that it's a, know that it's a, a viable option, it's something that you have interest in, and when conditions support it, discretionary time, discretionary funds, whatever it is in your life that would support it, when it's available, then you've already made the decision, you'll do it. But if you're not nurturing that aspiration, you won't even recognize when the conditions are available to support it. So if you nurture it, then you'll see. So keep that keep that alive. Um, most of you, I mean, from just talking with you, not not all, but many of you, most of you have you have sampled the smorgasbord of Dharma delights. Okay, pick a meal. Get some nourishment from all your dharma delighting. Meaning, identify the teacher or technique or the teachings or the practice that you resonate with and do it. You know, it's nice to do a little this, a little this, a little this, a little this, get a little sampling. That's good, that's good. But once you know what is what you resonate with, there's more to be discovered. If you go in one tradition with one teacher or one practice, and you go deeper, you know there's there's two dimensions to this uh, exploration of the Dharma. There's broad and there's deep. Broad is really available in the, in the U.S. now. There's just so much available, so many teachers, so many applications of Dharma principles to every activity of life. But liberation is deep. It's not broad. So. Just understand that. Dabbling in a little bit more variety and a little bit more smuggishboarding probably won't be as rewarding as you hope or won't won't be as revealing as you've heard. So you have to go deep. What else? Anything else? I always have this tone of voice. <laughs> Any questions? If there's no question, we'll just practice till. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Since I'm new, I didn't understand the word you were saying, so could you spell it? The paramis? Yeah. P A R A M I. And these are called, sometimes they're called the perfections or the purifications because they purify the mind of attachment, aversion, and delusion. Is, um, when we had the group session, um, the woman here talked about the poster in the bathroom. 
bathroom. Yeah, the poster in the bathroom. Right. Yeah, the, those are the ten paramis. Okay, generosity, living in, living ethically, living in harmony, precepts, <coughs> loving kindness, patience, truthfulness, renunciation, resolve, wisdom. Equanimity. Energy and equanimity. Okay. Thanks. I almost got it. I mean, there's nothing spiritual about them. There's nothing Buddhist about them. They're they're human qualities that we all we all have. We all have some amount of them, and there's always room for improvement. That's the practice. What does that word mean? Yeah. Perfection. Purification. It means perfection. Parami is paramount, something like paramount, the, the peak, the perfection, the, the best. Kanti paramam tapotitika. The Buddha said, Kanti paramam tapotitika. Patience is the supreme virtue. So, Kanti paramam tapotitika. Paramam, supreme. It's kind of like supreme. The supreme qualities are the paramis. You know, they make us, we really, they really make us human. Really fully, fully human. The best of humanity displays those qualities. In, in every culture, in every society. People respect, people value, people honor. Those who are truthful, those who are generous, those who are kind, loving, those who are wise, those who, you know, live simply, renunciation. Those who are resolved, energetic, non-reactive, but <coughs> equanimous. Equanimity, that's... They're valued everywhere. Where can we get the poster in the bathroom? Where can you get the poster in the bathroom? It's got your name on it. I know, it's got my name on it. Okay, well, you know, I was just talking about them one time at a retreat and somebody liked what they heard, wrote it all down, and took it and massaged it into... and then asked me if they could make a poster of it. I had no idea what they were talking about. I mean, just, yeah, sure. So then they come up with this, you know, design thing and on nice paper, and they sell them for $20 as a way of raising funds for their uh, sitting group in, in uh, Rochester. And the guy who'd done it, the guy who's kind of holding the key to, to it all is Doug McGill. And so you could write to him, and he would sell you one for... Twenty dollars or something like that, or I don't know, I mean, does a group in Rochester have a website? Do you know? Is it on the website? Uh, I don't know. Probably. Yeah, I already yeah. contacted him. Yeah. Okay. So you can contact him, and he also sends out a daily Utejania teaching called the Daily Utejania, and it's a little teaching from Utejania's talks and things like that. It's really a good reminder. Every day there's a new one in your inbox. It's really good. It's a reminder. Huh? The Daily Tejaniya. Write to Gil, write to him, and uh, he'll just put you on the list. All of this information, all of this information is on a sheet that I'll have available down there on the counter. Uh, on one side of it is all the information, contact information about me and my talks and stuff like that. And for Utejaniya, if you want information about him and his teachings and where they are and where to get them and how to go to Burma and blah, blah, blah. And on the flip side is a book list. I did put one together. 
Well, I didn't put it together. I just copied it off our website. <laughs> I put it together a few years ago when we did our website. <laughs> okay. But I printed it out. And there's a few copies there. Yeah? Kind of a comment. Um, I found myself, every time you'd say um, something about practicing correctly, if you're, if you're practicing correctly, that phrase that I was going... My God, what if I'm not practicing correctly? And so I decided to take, um, I assumed practicing correctly was having the right attitude, and I took the list of Mutajanaya's um, 22 points. 23 points, yeah. And, 20, and I went through it, and I sort of did a personal summarizing of them yeah. in terms of what seemed to stand out as most needed for me and which ones were the ones that I might be slipping off into, and uh, it was really helpful. I mean, yeah, sure. Those 23 points are really good Mm -hmm. as far as guiding your attitude, your attitude in practice and what to not not expect in practice, how to practice correctly. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Can you provide some wisdom about, um, you know, re-entry... how much of your of one's sittings to share with the spouse who either might be in a similar yeah. or might not at all be Yeah. Okay, thanks for that reminder. <laughs> <laughs> a couple things. One is, you know, the thing about coming on a retreat like this is, you know, you show up on, you know, nine days ago and you just kind of <sighs> The fullness of your life has just kind of carried you this far. And then gradually over the last seven or eight days, you just kind of settle down, quiet down, get a little more here, get slow down. And if you've never done a retreat before, you have no idea where you are right now. You are are really into your minds in a way that doesn't happen out there in the world so much. And so be a little gentle as you leave here tomorrow, just know that the world out there is still going 100 miles an hour and it's just overloaded and it's just totally overstimulating and it's just totally consumptive and they're not... Generally, they don't... It doesn't... That kind of lifestyle doesn't encourage the kind of awareness, the kind of pace, the sensitivity to yourself and others that we've grown used to here. Just, Just as a fact. So, when you leave, you know, first thing, be careful when you turn on your phone, your computer, whatever it is, and your inbox comes up with whatever it's going to come up with. You do not need to read them all at once. You can give yourself several days to get through them, and that would be wise. Or do a little little triage. You know, they all come up and just which ones you have to do now. And give yourself, you know, whatever limit of time you want to spend with them. You know, you're not going to get them all, but you can spend half hour now. In another couple hours, you can do another half hour, put them aside. Because you can lose, you can, you can blow off the continuity and the momentum of your mindfulness really quickly. And then you'll have a headache and regret. It's not worth it. So go slow. The other thing is, uh, we've been in nature we have been immersed in this forest, mm-hmm. and it's just you. It, we don't. We don't. We almost don't realize how much it conditions 
our experience of the practice and ourselves and and a lot of us don't live in the forest so find a reasonable substitute you know some a park nearby or something where you can be outside uh, you know in in nature over the next few days take some time to really be alone be in nature uh, unplugged okay the other thing is um, even if you could if somebody says as many people will whether it's people in your household or people at work or neighbors where you been been a retreat how's your retreat great they really don't want to know <laughs> you know they're being polite you know they got to say they got to give you the usual hi how are you doing you know they do not want to know hey alternate hours of sitting and walking 14 hours a day it was great <laughs> you know and the highs and lows of your practice most couldn't relate to you know the pain the sorrow the joys the, the aspirations the delight they don't get it and that guy who was talking up at the front of the class all the time they don't know him they don't care it, it's not about that what you want to understand is that right now your faith and confidence in the Dharma and your faith and confidence in yourself to practice the Dharma as well as you can is at an all-time high. And with less continuity, it's going to get shakier. And all it takes is careless people who don't value awareness, don't value solitude, don't value insight to throw a couple of darts at your sincere and fragile faith and it'll, you'll, it'll, you'll get deflated. So we want to be really careful with your faith. Uh, if people don't know what practice is or haven't been on a retreat and they inquire, they may be, they may be sincere, but you can't educate them to all that, you, all that you experience. So a casual question deserves a casual answer. A sincere question deserves a sincere answer, but not very long. Only someone who knows practice, has been on retreat, that you know, that you can share with, uh, a little bit more. That's about it. Because you know how hard it is to speak about your practice, even in this protection of a group. You know, when you have a group and you're talking about your practice, it's hard, you know, it's hard to put into words it's hard to be open. It's hard to even know how to... What, what was important in, in the last 48 hours that I went through? What was important? I don't know. And, and if you just kind of do a quick wrap-up synopsis that only takes two hours <laughs> talking to someone, you'll still leave out most of it. And then the second time you talk about it, it won't be two hours, it'll be 20 minutes. And the third time you tell someone about it, it'll be two minutes. And that's all you remember. The sound bite of your practice. Your retreat. So don't 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 demean the efforts that you've generated here. Or don't be careful not to minimize the benefit that you may not yet even realize about of having been here. You know, deep seeds get planted in pure minds. And, you know, there's times when the mind is really pure here. The mind is really just kind of open 
hearing the truth, willing to hear the truth, not ambitious, not defensive, and you hear something about the Dharma and it goes in there. It'll sprout if it's nurtured, if it's cared for, or it'll get buried under cynicism, doubt, questioning, you know, fear of other people. So just respect, respect the fact that you're open, you're sensitive, you've had a transformative uh, experience here, you've planted deep seeds of wisdom and caring, self-caring that was, you know, a lot of people don't, don't know anything about, frankly. I'm not talking about your parents and your pets and or anything like that, or your, your partners or whoever, or your kids. But only you know what you've been through, and even then it's hard to know what we've been through. So be, be, be very gentle with your, with your faith in the Dharma, your expression of what happened for you at the retreat, things like that. You know, uh, what to say. On the other hand, if you can display, if you can act from the place of wisdom, caring, sensitivity, compassion, understanding, aspiration, joy, whatever it is that you've touched here, fine. You can, you can share it through your behavior and how you speak. Talking about it, not so effective. Displaying it through behavior, the best you can do. Other comments, questions? I just wanted to say, the last time I was at retreat um, with you, for me, driving was a real um, interesting thing when I <laughs> left there. I just drove that out. Fortunately, I don't have to drive when I leave here. But it was challenging. I was like, wow, the roads were moving really quickly. Sure. Yeah, yeah it's, it's true. Um, Sometimes people come out of retreat and get in a car and don't see the first stop sign or two or green lights and red lights and you know or feel very timid, feel pretty intimidated by the speed of traffic, you know, and just kind of are driving at an inappropriate speed, like too slow. <laughs> you, know, or, you know, there's you know it's a little we're in a little bit of a trippy space here, a little bit distorted reality, and you know mainstream out on the highway is still going like they were when you came down or when you came over when you landed so be careful you know just be careful don't distract yourself too much do not text or phone while driving (laughs) I know you've got much more capacity and you can be so aware of so much more now but believe me And I need that reminding as much as anybody else. But I, I have a question of curiosity, not that I have a desire at this point in my life, but um, knowing what happened here during a 10-day, I can't even imagine what happens during a three-month in terms of a schedule. In, in terms of what? A schedule. A schedule. The same schedule every yeah. day for yeah. three months? Actually, actually, if you go to the three-month course, like at IMS... That's where you have a three-month course or six weeks of it. Uh, there is a schedule. There's a posted schedule. Uh, you know, there's the instructional sitting in the morning. There's a Dharma talk at night, most nights, and whatnot. But usually, people find their own schedule within, you know, 
they kind of all kind of start out for the first week, and then by the second week, people are doing their own schedule, and it's it's totally self-directed. There's a schedule that you can follow, but a lot of people, you know, will be up all night. There'll be people that are up. Some people will get up, you know, and so that they can practice in the quiet hours. So you'd never be alone at, at midnight or one o'clock, two o'clock. There's people, some are getting up, some haven't gone to bed yet. So it's mostly find your own schedule. There's a schedule if you want to follow it, and there'll be plenty of, plenty of people each day doing that, but maybe not the same people every day. So, but, and it also ends up being, you know, uh, everything you do is practice. It's not just sitting. It's sitting, walking, doing your, your, your chore, to, your service chore to help keep the place running and stuff like that. Go to IMS for a month. Is it the same teaching, same practice? Uh, so the question is whether if you go to IMS for a month, for example, is it the same practice? Yes and no. Uh, depends on the teacher. Different teachers. I, IMS has, you know, uh, you know, I don't know, twenty retreats, twenty-five, thirty retreats a year, and you know, lots of different teachers coming. Essentially, they're all teaching mindfulness, and they're all teaching some form of insight. Or Vipassana. There's a few retreats that might be more concentration, or you know, there's some specialty retreats for teens and young adults that might be a little bit adjusted a little bit. But for the most part, they're mindfulness, um, of mindfulness, awareness, insight. But as far as the the uniformity or the consistency of what I've been teaching here, of pointing to awareness, recognizing. Uh, awareness and attitudes of mind, most teachers will not be teaching that. No. They'll be teaching object-oriented practice uh, with a lot of uh, loving-kindness. Most courses will teach loving-kindness, uh, metta or, or something like that, uh, but it'll be object-oriented. Uh, the teachers that teach more awareness-oriented practice, with m- more exclusively, let's say, uh, who've been practicing with Utejaniya and have found it useful to teach in that way are myself, Carol Wilson, Andrea Fella, Kamala Masters, uh, and an, an, a newly minted teacher, Alexis Santos, and Heather, Heather Martin, <clears throat> to a degree. Yeah. What is Andrea's last name? Say it again. Andrea's last name? Fella, F-E-L-L-A. So, and, and, you know, we teach here, uh, Carol and I and Alexis teach at IMS and Spirit Rock. I teach here three times a year. Andrea teaches a couple times a year here. Andrea teaches a lot down in San Jose? No. Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz? That's where they're inside. Somewhere down there. Are there longer retreats in the states in this style, like month-long? In this style of awareness-oriented retreats, there is not currently a longer retreat. However, Carol Wilson and Andrea Fellow will be teaching a month-long in June of 2018. (laughs) 
at the forest refuge. And it'll be this awareness style. There's also after that, Andrea and you. Yeah, Andrea teaches here, usually just before I do, or often just before I do. She was here mm-hmm. for a week be before. Eight days. Huh? Eight days. Eight days before this nine day, so that would have been 17 days. And in the fall, I'm back in October for a week, and I think she teaches she a week. Back to back again. She's we, so it'll be 14 days. 14 days. Next, this is next year. She's going to do two weeks in the fall before you. So next That's year, you can get a three, three or three and a half week. Something like that. Um. What is the etiquette or appropriateness of um, incorporating this kind of awareness practice at a retreat where the teacher is teaching something else? Yeah, so the question is how to integrate, or what is, the, is it appropriate to practice this at a retreat being led by a teacher who's teaching something else? Uh, well, one thing that you'll know is that you'll notice is that when teachers teach object-oriented, they give you a primary object, you're noticing the breath and other things, and they all will give you instructions for that. But they're not saying, don't check your attitude of mind. <laughs> you know, so you can do that. You can, you can check your attitude of mind as often as you want, and it'd be useful. In fact, most of the 23 points can be adapted to any other technique that you're using. Okay, unless you're doing a, a concentration practice only, and then you'd have to do some real adapting. But a lot of those points can be useful. And I've and I've heard that in in, in Burma, uh, Sayadaw teaches this with the 23 points. And then there's a teacher, uh, Pa Ok Sayadaw, who's a teaches concentration, really strict concentration. And Sayadaw Utejani is 23 points are very popular in that monastery mm-hmm. because it gives them a way of. It gives them some reminders to watch your attitude of mind as you're practicing concentration practices, you know, rather than really getting striving and just like, wow, relax, relax, relax. So, you know, most of the Western teachers that you might practice with have practiced with Utejaniya. So they just might not be teaching it as exclusively as I was doing it here. But they know that teaching, and awareness of mind or mindfulness of mind or awareness practice is not unknown to them, even before we practice with Utejaniya. But since practicing with Utejaniya, we teach it more than just let students come upon it in the evolution of other techniques. Yes? Well, it's kind of a different kind of question, comment. So I sold my house in Philadelphia last summer. and had an au pair suite in the top floor. You, you what? Wait, wait a minute. No, wait a minute. You said you, you sold your house. Yeah, had an au pair suite, you know. For a, a, and a couple of Mormons bought it with a six- and a nine-year-old child. And what they did with it is uh, have a uh, homeless woman stay there, and as she got a job, etc. Okay. And I told, when I moved here, the next-door neighbor uh, said, come to coffee with me at 6 in the morning with my buddies. And I did, and I told this story, and they all looked down at their coffee, kind of, and then 
turned out every one of them had converted their basement to a uh, place for refugee families. And I thought to myself, wow, this is such a level of paramedics or compassion or beyond what I know in the Buddhist community. So, so, I mean, it's really putting themselves out and putting people in their homes and, and strangers, and it just, wow, it, it really strikes me as, as different in a way that we don't do, even though, you know, I know that by our liberation we set an example and, and help all, all others, but it, still, it, uh, you know, it, uh, I don't know what the question is. It's a, a, a comment on why that kind of spirit isn't in the same way or something like, like that. So the comment is about um, uh, putting wisdom and compassion into action in your life in the most immediate and very personal way. And you mentioned about neighbors who have converted their uh, cellars or spare room or something into accommodations for refugee uh, people. And the question is, I don't see that happening in the Buddhist community or something like that. And is it or isn't it? Um, it's a good point to make, but I think that in the, the 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 Buddhist community of meditation practitioners, uh, we don't we don't emphasize that kind of behavior or that's not what we're here for. We're not here to organize that or to do that. But let me just reassure you, there's a lot of people who practice mindfulness and, and are nominally in the, in the Buddhist community who are doing a tremendous amount of social, civic, environmental work. I, I don't know just who's doing what or who's treating, uh, you know, who, who's hosting refugees or anything but I, I hear from individuals what they're doing with their life and there's a lot so I can and I and I only see a few people so I can assure you that there's a lot going on that might be beneath the radar of of kind of public consumption or news for example but individually <laughs> there's, a lot, there's a lot going on all you have to do is Google socially engaged Buddhism to find all different sorts of organizations and ways that you can bring this practice in. Great. And what we as lay practitioners are doing, it might be different than what some of the ethnic Buddhist communities are doing, yes. and we can support them too. Yeah. So the comment is about um, Googling, what you say? Socially engaged, Socially engaged Buddhism. Buddhism, and there's lots of resources there. And some of the, some of uh, what you might find is the the Asian Buddhist communities are doing a lot, and there's a west uh, uh, there's ways of supporting them too. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.